Well, uh, thank you all for coming to our library talk. Um, we have Dr. Bird with us here today, Dr. Michael Bird. Um, as many of you know, we, we do these library talks to kind of give you a chance to see what the academic life is like. So we've covered things from uh, how to uh, publish, how to uh, read uh, for the purpose of um, research. Um, we also have talks like this one uh, where we discuss specific topics. And I was very excited when Dr. Bird uh, suggested that we talk about the new perspectives on Paul and the implications of that for church ministry, because that does bring us into uh, you know, a slightly different track of where library talks have been, but one that I think is important in that everything that we study here in academics uh, does have an implication into the other parts of our life. Um, and so uh, I like that connection, so I was happy when you uh, sent that as the topic yeah. that you wanted to discuss. So uh, first, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, first thing I want to start off with is what are, what are the new perspectives on Paul? Okay, the new perspective on Paul is basically this. Once upon a time, we assumed that what Paul found wrong with Judaism was it was legalistic. So it was a lot like medieval Catholicism. But instead of guys in pointy white hats, you had kind of like rabbis. And so that was very legalistic, and Paul discovered the doctrine of grace, a merciful God through the gospel, and he was preaching salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, over and against the somewhat synergistic, merit-based theology of the Pharisees and the rabbis. Now, a number of people pointed out, though, that that's a kind of distorted view of Judaism. A number of Jewish scholars in the late 19th and early 20th century pointed out that's not really a fair representation of Judaism. It's a caricature. It's a stereotype. And, uh, and then some Christian scholars began to point out that Judaism was more complicated. And it came to a head in 1977 when a guy called E.P. Sanders wrote a book called Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And he went through various Palestinian texts and he said, what you find here is not legalism, but more what he calls covenantal gnomism, where God gives you grace to get in the covenant and the purpose of works is to remain in the covenant. And it was a very good exploration of Palestinian Judaism that, that, that did not match the caricature that Protestants had of Judaism. But that led to a kind of funny question then, didn't it? Well, if, if Paul's problem with Judaism was not that it was legalistic, then what did Paul find wrong with it? Now, Sanders' answer was rather bland. He said the problem with Judaism is that it was not Christianity, which is like saying the problem with North Carolina is that it's not South Carolina or it's something like that. Or was it the other way around? I can't remember which one. Which one's the good state again? I can't remember. Uh, North Carolina. Uh, oh, that one, yes. yes. The, one, the one we're in, yeah. <laughs> Uh, then other people said, no, the problem with Judaism, it was a too ethnocentric. It believed that salvation was limited just to the Jews and it was um, not for the Gentiles. And it was, it was too ethnocentric uh, along those lines. And then people began to read Paul that way, thinking not so much in theological categories, but more of sociological categories. So justification in, in some expressions became not so much my status before God, as much as my status within the covenant community. There's that I, 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 be, I belong here because I believed. And, and that led to a somewhat reconfiguring of things. So works of the law were not legalistic works of self-righteousness, but it was the boundary markers of belonging to the Jewish people. And this led to a huge debate between those who wanted to maintain a fairly traditional Protestant understanding of Paul, where justification is about uh, a forensic alien righteousness through imputation 
and the, there really was Jewish legalism, and those who wanted a more sociological approach to the study of ancient Judaism, more focused on group boundaries, insiders and outsiders, rather than on, on, on theological dogma and theological readings of Paul. So that was, that was kind of how the debate, debate played out for a long time. So where is the debate now? I think we're actually past the debate, to be honest. Uh, I think we're definitely in a post-new perspective era. And I think, I think this is what we can say. Okay, the new perspective on Paul was largely right in what it affirmed, but not often correct in what it denied. Okay, let me, let me give you some examples of that. I can turn anyone here into a pro-new perspective person just by asking them a couple of questions. Okay. So who, who, who thinks they know their Bible pretty well? Who here who knows their Bible pretty well? At a Baptist seminary, it should be all of you. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, the guy there, the guy, the guy looks like Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, the guy with the beard. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let me ask you a question. You know, in Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us. Okay, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I think that's true. Okay, what was the purpose of Christ becoming a curse for us? What does Paul say what the purpose of Christ becoming a curse for us? Um, to take the punishment? Take the punishment? Good penal substitution, yes! Yeah, huh. he's, he's been well instructed. That's true, that's just not what Paul says though. <laughs> it's true, that's not what Paul says. Now most, but, but, but what you said is very typical. Most people would say Christ died on the cross to, so we, we could have a re redemptive relationship with God. But what Paul says is Christ became a curse on the cross for us so that we might be redeemed. And listen to this. So the blessing of Abraham may come upon the Gentiles. Most people answer that question in terms of personal, individual, vertical soteriology, what must I do to be saved? Paul's answer is horizontal redemptive history. Okay? In other words, God's purpose through the death of the Messiah was through Ismael's Messiah to bring Gentiles into the family of Abraham. So there's clearly a social uh, pan panoramic horizon. If you know your biblical theology, that should be unsurprising. Okay, let me ask the other guy. The guy wearing the uh, baseball hat, even though he's clearly inside a building where there's no rain. <laughs> and even if there was rain, the Bible, the rain, the hat would not keep rain off his face because it's been turned backwards. I do not understand, but I affirm. Because <laughs> I'm very inclusive. Okay, let, let, let me begin you with another statement. You know, Paul says, do we believe a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law or... What comes after that? We, he says, do, do we believe a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law or what comes, or what? Or circumcision? I, I don't know. Well, I mean, most people think like, mo most people would answer, do we believe a person is justified by works of the law? Um, oh, sorry, by, by faith rather than by works of the law. Or, most people say, or are the Catholics right? You know, or are we going to become uh, really legalistic Baptist, or yeah, whatever it is. But Paul's answer is, do we believe a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Listen to that. The opposite of justification by faith is the view that God has limited his grace only to the Jewish people. That is clearly evidence of a, soteri of a, of a social horizon. Okay? And the third thing I'll point out, you, sh you should all know Ephesians 2, 8-9, for it is by grace we have been saved. 
by faith. It's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Okay, great, you know, very good. You know, salvation uh, by grace through faith that rules out any kind of legalistic synergistic synergism. But what Paul talks about for the next chapter and a half is how God has brought Jews and Gentiles together in one body. And Gentiles who are aliens have joined the commonwealth of Israel. Okay, So in other words, there is clearly a social dimension to what Paul is talking about. And know this, Paul is not just answering the question. Justification doesn't answer the question, what must I do to be saved? It does tell us that the answer is faith. It also answers the question, who are the people of God? And the answer is those who have faith, be they Jew, be they Gentile, be they Arab, be they American, be they Australian, and even South Carolinians. We have one here. <clears throat> All right, so um, since you answered so many of my questions here, I'm going to take a second yep. to, to get to which one that I want to ask next. Um, all right, so that, that's how uh, Paul understands, uh, or, or how you're suggesting the new perspectives on Paul understand, yep. Paul's understanding of salvation. Um, how, would, how would that fit in with the macrostructure of the rest of the New Testament teachings? Okay, I think it, I think it fits quite well. I mean, if you, if you read your Bible, you know that God's purpose, I think, always was for a transformed Israel to transform the world. I think that that's a basic thesis going all the way back to Genesis 12. A transformed Israel would transform the world. And it gets played out its own ways uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Luke Acts, in John, in Hebrews, in First Peter, and in Revelation. And it's not the case of like Israel got first bite of the pie and then they didn't like it so they got voted off the island. Uh, it's not the, like that. It's all about the, Israel. the idea was to ex not to replace Israel, but always to expand Israel. So it would, it would be many nations in there. And that's why Israel was meant to be a light to the nation. They were meant to be unto the nations, to be a kingdom of priests, radiating uh, in a magnetic way God's love, God's truth, God's holiness, uh, and proclaiming him through his worship. And that comes to a head in the Messiah and the Messiah's people who are not Israel 2.0, they are part of the renewed Israel through whom God is ushering in this new creation. Okay. Um, so now let's switch to implications of this for church ministry, because I yep. think that's what you want to spend more time on. Yep. Um, and so uh, how does a view of new perspectives on Paul, um, how does that, what implications does that have for the church? Okay, let, let me just, I'll get to that. Let me just preface it one okay. thing. Mm -hmm. I think if you have a fully orbed, idea of justification by faith, you will get both Martin Luther and Martin Luther King. So I think you can retain the Protestant emphases on salvation by grace through faith. And you get like Romans 4, God justifies the ungodly, not the righteous. You know, God saves the sinners, not those who are worthy of it. So you can maintain those standard Protestant emphases, but you have to understand that justification is both vertical and horizontal. So it is about our status, quorum Deo, before God, where we stand before God in a, in a, a, redempt, a redeemed and righteous state, not on, a con, on our own account, but because we have union with Christ. Okay, that's why we're, we're right with God. But there's also the horizontal dimension that it means we are validated as members of the covenant community, be we Jew or Gentile or whatever. Now, you can do, Tom Wright likes to call that the eschatological element and the covenantal element. You can do it either way. 
the language. But then if you say, but if we focus for a second, what does that horizontal element mean? Well, it means justification by faith requires fellowship by faith. Where someone calls on the same Lord as you, if their heart is the same as your heart, then you're meant to be in fellowship with them. And not just that they are like, well, we have a spiritual unity with them. And we'll be, we'll be spiritually united over here and they'll be spiritually united over there. Our spiritual unity is meant to be expressed visibly uh, in, in an outward sense. And that also means that wherever there are factors and forces, social, economic, of class or caste, they are meant to be broken down to have the unity of the church. So how does that play out in the church? Well, let me give you uh, an example. On my first trip to America in 1999... I uh, met with a very good friend of mine who was a Southern Baptist pastor. And he had recently been offered to pastor a church, in a, in, uh, this particular church that, uh, that needed him. And he said uh, that he would only pastor the church if they consented to move it. Because the neighborhood was becoming an increasingly black area. And he said it would be impossible to grow a white church in a black area so he said we need to move I'll only pastor the church if you consent to move the church to a different white majority area now when I heard this I was like thoroughly appalled I thought I can't believe this is just I don't want to call it racist but so racially racially partisan and it just goes to underscore and and highlight the sort of the racially segregated nature of the worship of American Christians uh, why not have a multiracial church? Why not at least partner with a local black congregation and do something? And what I got, not just from him, but from many friends, those are wonderful ideals, Michael. But when you're actually down in the neighborhood trying to plant a church, he said, you can have your ideals, but white folks will not drive to a black area to go to church. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. If they've got a, church, if they've got a choice between a, a white church in their neighborhood or a black church, they will go to the white church. And he said, that's just the pragmatic reality and you can have all your ideals, but it won't work. And you know, I remember hearing that and being a bit disappointed uh, in this friend of mine. And I am aware of the, um, of the ideals and the pragmatic reality. Um, yeah, I'm sure it probably is hard to have a white, white church in a black area, but is, is, is that all there is? Is that all you can? Is, is that all you do? Just say, oh well, that's just the way it is, and we'll have our own little ghetto over here, and they'll have their own little ghetto over there, and we'll we'll support each other. You know, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. But we'll never actually come together in a physical sense. Uh, and yet, for Paul, I think his idea of the the uh, it is the body physically together, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. That's what Romans is about. That's the climax of Romans. Okay, um, it's not about bashing Catholics. It's not about long live Luther. It's about welcome one another, as the Messiah welcomed you. Let me give you another example of the same thing in Australia. There was a, Australia's got a, a very big Asian population. About fifteen percent of our of our population is Asian, and there was a Baptist church in a suburb that wanted that noticed it was becoming a very increasing Asian area. And they said, you know, you know what we're going to do? We're going to plant a Chinese congregation in our church. And so they, they went out, they hired a, a, a Chinese seminary grad, and they told him to evangelize and plant a congregation in their church that would meet at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. And it went well. It went super well. It went brilliantly. To the point where the Chinese congregation now outnumbered the Anglo-Saxon congregation. <laughs> 
So being good Baptists, they had their annual general meeting and the congregation uh, voted to swap service times. Now the Chinese congregation got to meet at 9 a.m. and the Anglo-Saxon was relegated to the top floor uh, to meet at 2 p.m. And the Anglo-Saxons were like, be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Listen, fellas, uh, this is our church. You know, you guys are the guests. We have, because of our graciousness, allowed you and your funny language and your little chopstick things to, to have lunch and to have, to have like, you know, worship at 2 p.m. kind of like, you know, upstairs, you know, where it's, it's good. You, we like that, but this, you don't replace us because this is our church. But it's the same, it's the same issue where the church, church can become ethnically divided, segregated, okay? And it is, uh, it is so, uh, that's not Paul's vision of the church. For Paul, where you have this multi-ethnic, diverse church meeting together as equals, where nobody sits at the back of the bus, where we don't ever say equal but separate, where you have that united church of Jew and Gentile worshipping the God of Israel through the Messiah, that is the sign of the kingdom. That is the proof that the new creation is here. And that, I think, we have to do uh, a lot more. Now, I'm not going to, I am not here, by the way, to lecture you on uh, the racial, cultural, and ethnic problems you have in your country and how it affects your churches. We have the same issues in, uh, similar issues in my country of Australia. But this, it, it does mean that if we're going to capture the Pauline vision of justification by faith, we need to implement fellowship by faith. So, yeah. So that's uh, one implication. Um, there was. You have any more implications? Oh, not the top of my head. Um, okay. Yeah, I think we could, we could we could focus on that one for a while. Uh, okay. Um, I, th I think that's the main social implication mm -hmm. that comes out of it, uh, and that is to say, you know, justification by faith, uh, as Marcus Barth said, like 50 years ago. It's not Karl Barth. It's Marcus Barth. Uh, it really is an ecumenical doctrine. It's meant to be the doctrine that says whenever someone has faith. They belong. They are part of the new covenant community. Uh, they they are part of the church, and that's why I've tended to define justification fairly, fairly comprehensively. I believe justification is the act where God creates a new people with a new status in a new covenant as a foretaste of the new age. And I think when when you put justification that way, you get both Martin Luther and Martin Luther King. Okay, both you know good reform theology, but a good Praxis where multi-ethnic churches are the norm rather than the exception, and we have fellowship with everyone by faith. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so you mentioned uh, Tom Wright, who is N.T. Wright for us yep, in yep. the Peace States. be upon him. Yeah. Um, so, and you also mentioned mentioned E.P. Sanders yep. at the beginning of your ta uh, talk. Who else has written on the new perspectives on Paul? Uh, James Dunn is another prominent guy. Uh, Ter Terence Donaldson, I think, is also a um, a much passed over luminary of, of the movement. I, th I always find his works very, uh, very learned and very informative as well. Um, James Dunn is, but I think James Dunn, Wright, and Sanders are the kind of the unholy trio, um, or the trinity of evil, I guess, um, <laughs> de depending on um, who's telling the story. 
Um, but I think they're, they're all very good in their own. They're, all, they're also very different. They're, they're not monolithic as well. Right. Um, Sanders, uh, Wright and Dunn all have their different ways of putting it. And even over Tom uh, N.T. Wright's career, you can see um, certain uh, m more nuances develop that may not have been there in the beginning. Like if you read his 1997 book, um, What St. Paul Really Said, uh, there are things in that book that really are a, a, a red flag to a bull. Um, that will cause a um, cerebral meltdown for certain reform critics, um, that type of thing, where you get to his big mature volume like Paul and the Faithfulness of God, and it's, it's, which is, I think is a far more nuanced and I think far more agreeable to some of the concerns and reservations had um, uh, along the way. So if you take his more recent volume as an expression of his mature articulation of things like justification, Paul, the church, uh, I think it's very, very sound and the least offensive book. I remember once um, uh, being at a dinner with James Dunn and where James Dunn's big 2005 volume came out and he was saying things like, you can have the new perspective and you can have the traditional you know, Protestant view and what that's concerned about. And I said, you know, James, if you'd written that in 1983, when he wrote his famous essay, The New Perspective on Paul, if you'd said that originally, we wouldn't have had any of this fuss or you know, accusations of heresy or you know, people kind of you know, sticking a dead horse in your bed. We wouldn't have any of that. Uh, or it might have been a bunny, I can't remember. Um, and he said, well, well, yeah, 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 but we wouldn't have as much fun either, would we, Michael? Um, which, is, which is true, which is true. Right, so what is, um, we're actually jumping back into the what is the NPP, but uh, what, uh, what is your overall assessment of the new perspectives on Paul and what they're, you know, what is the problem they're seeking to answer? I know yep. we kind of answered that, but um, yep. maybe clarify that for those who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, okay. Um, I think we've reached a, a point now beyond the new perspective. We've recognized that the new perspective gave us some uh, sociological lenses for understanding what's going on. It's not just what must I do to be saved. We're not just thinking in the terms of Protestant dogmatics or Christian dogmatics. We have to think of some social categories for what Paul is doing. So there is a sociology, an ecclesiology, you might say, into what Paul's doing when he articulates justification by faith. So I think that's fully recognized. Where the new perspective of Paul went a little bit too hard was perhaps reducing uh, Paul's critique of Judaism to a social epiphenomenon. In other words, you did not need Jesus to die on the cross to know that God was also the God of the nations. You can find that in Genesis. You can find that in you know, the book of Jonah, classically, and the like. And this, this is probably where I... I don't, I don't know whether Tom Wright and others would disagree with this, but I tend to think Paul is addressing... Uh, the, the issue is, what is the problem with humanity that the law and its covenants cannot solve. What is the problem? What is the so it's anthropo there is an anthropological problem there. It's not just that the Jews are too um, exclusive in keeping out the Gentiles because you know they did admit Gentiles as proselytes. They were sort of inclusive, and different Gentiles like Philo, or not Jeremy, he's a Jew, but Jews like Philo could have a fairly inclusive and receptive attitude towards Gentile monotheists. So it, it, was quite, it was quite diverse. So I don't think it was just ethnocentric. I think Paul sees there is a problem with humanity that the, the law, the Torah, and the covenants cannot fix. And that's why God sends the Messiah. So I think that may have been downplayed a bit on the new perspective side, although in some treatments it, it does come out a, a bit clearer. And the other thing to say is, uh, it's not the case of Judaism was legalistic or wasn't. It was far more complex than that, as 
uh, D.A. Carson coined the term, it was variegated gnomism. There were different ideas of how salvation worked out. This, this dawned on me when I read some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you can, you can find some passages there like sound like parts of the Psalms. You know, If I stumble because of my sins, I will be saved by the mercy of God. You know, it doesn't exactly sound like your standard Protestant legalism. And yet I can also find Philo talking about debates in Alexander, and he's in the first century. When it comes to Deuteronomy 9, there are debates amongst Jews as to whether God's salvation is freely given or whether it's somehow earned. Okay, so, so Jews themselves disagreed on the question, what must I do have to be saved? How efficacious was the covenant? How do we appropriate God's grace? So there was different, different ideas of, uh, amongst the Jewish people about how they related to their God, let alone how it would work for Gentiles. You know, and when you emphasize eschatology, you know, what do we do to enter the future age or to bring the renewal of Israel? When you focus on sectarian disputes about, okay, we have to follow the law, but whose law? You know, which of the Pharisees or the teacher of righteousness or the Essenes? Whose view of the law is the right one? And then if you add groups, uh, rights of entry for outsiders, like how do Gentiles join um, Israel? What do they have to do to join the covenant people? Uh, those three circumstances where you've got eschatology, sectarian disputes, rights of entry, they can all push you in a nomistic direction. And I think you can find all of those instances reflected in the New Testament. So in a sense, Paul was addressing a mixture of ethnocentrism and a kind of legalism. Or I don't like that term, it's got too much baggage. I would call it an ethnocentric gnomism. Because when you've got to do the works of the law, you have to follow the Jewish way of life codified in the Torah as the means to relating to God and to be part of the covenant people. So I think the Protestants are part right in that sola gratia, that salvation by grace, but what they're lacking is what I would call the social reality uh, that that's couched in. Um, so uh, in some of the debate, you've got um, several prolific writers in the United States. I won't say uh -huh. any names or yeah. anything. I'm going off script here, by the way, okay. just to let you know. Um, uh, but they usually they're described as talking past one another between, uh, say, a, a Tom Wright and, and this particular individual. So, um, <clears throat> makes it sound like he cannot be named. I mean, yeah. If yeah, we I say just, his name, will he turn up? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, okay. But, but yeah. Uh, but yeah. So, um, say Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Uh, it's always been said that they're talking past one another. They yep. don't understand one another. I, uh, I guess there are a couple of questions I would want to ask. Uh, with that, do you think that's correct? What what is it that, say, we'll we'll just say Protestants or Reformed yep. are missing, and then how has their pushback has their pushback <laughs> actually helped the uh, those who hold to the new perspectives on Paul develop their ideas or articulate their ideas better? Uh, yeah, I think it has. Um, I do think this has been a conflict between people who think in systematic categories, and those who think in historical categories. So if the context through which you're reading Paul is through the lens of Calvin or John Owen, you're going to, have, you're going to be primed to articulate things in a certain way, use a certain language, expect certain words to appear as code words for the correct way of reading Paul. But if you're reading Paul then in the context of Palestinian Judaism or Diaspora Judaism, you're dealing with a different language and a different um, bunch of signifier and terms and concerns. Like I'll be honest with you, like for the Protestants, the biggest issue is don't confuse law and gospel. 
that's that's the big thing in Protestant theology. You know, don't confuse law and gospel. If you read the, the the early church, their biggest debates was not on law and gospel. It wasn't over inerrancy. It wasn't about women in ministry or anything like that. Their biggest debates were about food and fellowship. What kind of food can you eat, and who gets to eat the food? Who do you eat with? Um, you know, can a good Baptist brother have fellowship and break bread with an Anglican? Uh, if so, what kind of food do you have to bring? Uh, can do we have English scones or do we have North Carolina barbecue? You know, what is the righteous way to do it? So what kind of, who can you eat with and what kind of food? You read Galatians, read the book of Acts, read 1 Corinthians. It comes down, the debates are about food and fellowship, uh, which is not all about law and gospel. I mean, there, there may be some implications there and maybe you get to Romans. But there's, when you, so, so when you've got people who are thinking those different categories, of course you're going to talk past each other. Um, I do think the new perspective was rightly pushed back on uh, because the, the danger was Paul was just offering uh, a more inclusive brand of Judaism. And in some more extreme versions, there is a, it's not new perspective, it's called the Paul within Judaism school. Um, they're articulating even more rigorously, and sometimes more correctly, but more rigorously Paul is a Jewish thinker, but then they end up with a guy who's so Jewish, I don't know why any synagogue would flog the dude. Um, if he's soldier, then then you know if he's just making, you know, offering offering a more inclusive way of Gentiles to do a little bit of Judaism. I just don't know why why anyone would call for this guy's death, um, that type of a thing. So I think there was some pushback on the new perspective on things like, well, Judaism cannot be generalized either as being legalistic or as being completely covenant-based. Uh, it was more complex than that. I think we've seen more complex discussions over things like works of the law. Works of the law are not just boundary markers. They are the works which the law requires, which do involve living a Jewish way of life. So you will become ethnically in integrated into one group if you do it, but it's not just a symbolic element to it. And I think also challenging some readings which tend to downplay the, the vertical element of salvation or justification. You see that particularly, I think, when James Dunn discusses like Romans 4, at least the, you know, verses 4 to 5. I think he does downplay the, 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 the quorum deo aspects of that. He wants to get to the social elements a little bit too quickly. So I think there has been some pushback on the new perspective that has brought us to a post-new post perspective perspective. So I think we've appropriated this, the social insights of the new perspective, which were right and have been prosecuted very well by people like Dunn, Sanders, and especially Wright, but we've still been able to maintain the architecture and framework of what the reformers were concerned about. All right, and then, uh, so we're, we're, we are talking about works of the law or, or works in general and, yep. and how uh, some people, uh, um, well, I don't know enough about this. I'm an Old Testament guy, so I don't want to misspeak oh, here. But I have to wash my hands now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, what uh, what are the implications of, uh, or I guess before we get there, how would you introduce a congregation or the church, or do you mean when when we were talking about this earlier, when you were talking about the church, do you mean the church universal, uh, what we've been talking about earlier, or were you yeah. referring to like local church ministry when you when you originally said that? Because that will. Oh, so out. how would I get a congregation to appropriate yeah. some of these insights? Yeah. yeah. Um, there's several ways. Uh, you could go out and purchase my Romans commentary on Mass. About 300 copies per congregation should about do it. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't care if you read them. I just want you to buy them. <laughs> 
Uh, that would be one. That would be one way to do it. Um, well, there's, there's uh, the two, and you, you could you could like do do a walk through, talk through Romans, walk through, talk through Galatians, walk through, talk through Philippians and Ephesians. I think that would work. That would work. Bringing out these kind of things I've been talking about. Uh, the other thing is uh, there is a, a really good book out that does discuss this, the implications of new perspective. It's written by uh, uh, Scott McKnight and Joe Modica. It's a terrific book. I just can't remember the title. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I've, re I've, I've read it. Anyone look it up? Scott McKnight, Joe Modica. I think it's published by Baker. Um, that's a terrific book you could do like an adult Sunday school class with or something like that. Um, the other thing you could really do um, is get a bunch of local pastors together, particularly if they're from you know, different ethnic groups or diverse groups, and talk about this issue. Um, what does justification by faith have to do with the unity of the church? So have like a roundtable discussion like that. And, and, you, and you may end up feeling a little bit uncomfortable because, I mean, I, I've noticed that not all Christians are identical to me. Um, and so you get someone who may be more conservative than me, someone might be more liberal than me, or someone just might be strange and foreign. Um, and, you know, and, but you sit there now and say, well, what does justification by faith relate to our context and how does it lead us towards the unity of the church uh, you know, how do we really believe that in Christ there is neither you know, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male and female? Uh, what does that look like in your congregation and what can we do together? So I think things like that would definitely get people thinking and just getting away from the idea that church is, uh, as Nick Parent said, the, the, the danger we think of church, we tend to think of church as the weekly meeting of Jesus' Facebook friends. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a dangerous way of thinking about church. Uh, we're meant to be a sign of the kingdom where these new cre creation realities are being expressed. And I think we just have to think through what that looks like. Has anyone got the name of the Scott McKnight book for me? Joe Modica? The Apostle, the, the Apostle Paul and the Christian Life. That was the book I was thinking on. Okay. Um, what implication would uh, new perspectives on Paul have for congregation in regards to ethics? Ethics? Oh, boy. Um, Ethics has never been my strong point. That's, my, that's what my attorney says. Um, no, it's, no, I don't have an attorney. Um, I think. I mean, I don't. There's anything. I think there's anything radically different from normal ethics. I think it does lead to more of a consciousness of the, eth the, the, the when you when when you when you're reading the New Testament, when you're talking about or teaching it, you may not know this but you are engaging in an ethnic level of discourse, okay? You're, you're talking about identities, whether we call them racial, ethnic, or, or, or whatever categories we're going to use. You're engaging in ethnic discourse. Paul is largely planting Gentile majority churches in the Greco-Roman cities somewhat um, beside Jewish communities which creates all level of tensions and difficulties. You've only got to read 1 Corinthians to know what a real messy... Con I mean, if I had to call the... the you know, you, you, if I had to call the... In terms of Paul's churches, you could say there was the good, the bad, and the Corinthians. Um, <laughs> they were the high... They were the problem, high-maintenance church that kind of sucked years off his life. And it, it is messy, so... and. and and it's like, to what extent can you participate in pagan culture without being pagan? 
okay? Uh, how much continuity and discontinuity is there between the church and uh, Judaism? That type of thing. So you, when you do the New Testament, you read, teach, preach, live out the New Testament, you're engaging in a social discourse that touches on things like ethnicity, uh, diaspora communities, and all those levels. I think having a consciousness of what you're operating in, it's not just theology, it's all these little sub-disciplines that have come together. And it helps if you know that. Um, and uh, one last question, and then we'll open it up to everybody. But if you are, uh, well, what advice would you give young seminary students if they're wanting to look into uh, understanding the uh, diaspora Jewish uh, communities better, like we've mentioned Dead Sea Scrolls, yep. um, you know, uh, Philo, uh, where would, what would you recommend that they, where they begin their research on I, that subject? I think a number of places. Um, read the primary sources. Read the Dead Sea Scrolls, read the Apocrypha, read the Pseudepigrapha, read, the, read Philo, read um, Joseph, get, get into those first century works, uh, or those works you know, uh, that will help you understand the first century. That helps. Uh, beyond that, there's, there's a couple of really good books, um, poor books I would recommend. Um, obviously, you've got uh, N.T. Wright's big massive, Paul on the Faithfulness of God, uh, which is massive and erudite. Um, however, uh, if you can't, if you if you don't have the three years of your life to give to reading to that, uh, you could always read my own little book called An, An Anomalous Jew, which is a kind of a survey of debates about Paul these days. And I talk about Paul and empire, Paul and Judaism, and you know, and, and those sorts of things. So that's that's another way to do it. Uh, I should say N.T. Wright also has a little biography of Paul that's just about to come out in January. I think that'll be a good little. A good little read as well, a helpful read. And I'm also a big fan of Francis Watson's book, uh, Paul, Judaism and the Gentiles. But make sure you get the second edition, which is very different to the first one. Uh, but I mean, if you have to do one thing, just immerse yourself in the sources and ask, what are these texts concerned about? Okay, uh, what do they tell us about the people behind them, who they wrote to, and you know what, and, and how does this illuminate the New Testament?